So good evening, everybody. You're still here. This is a good sign. At least you, I think you're here. <laughs> you really here? How here are you? <laughs> well, I bow to your practice. I bow to salute your uh, efforts and good work. Not easy, this path of intensive retreat. Looks nice from the outside. Looks very peaceful and serene and blissful and quiet and lovely. And, and, and it can be, of course, all of those things. And it's also a lot of work. Yeah, moment by moment, the, the, the clock ticks slowly on retreat. Sometimes the hours just labor by because yeah, we're not distracted. We're not diverted from just what's here. So, and it's an interesting journey. No matter how many retreats you've sat, it's always an interesting ride. So we just have to show up for the performance and see what happens. So tonight I want to talk about some of the things that you are quite familiar with in these last two days of retreat. Some of the more challenging uh, obstacles or um, what's known as hindrances. Um, so just some of the challenging states and um, habits and tendencies that we, that we can tend to dwell in, both here and in our lives. I mean, we, we, we dwell in them a lot in our lives, but we see them more up close. So, so Humpty Dumpty goes to the therapist's office, and the therapist earnestly says to Humpty, you have to, we have to get you to the place where you can put yourself back together again. This is kind of like going on retreat, where we kind of pull all the disparate pieces of our psyche and our mind and heart, and we learning slowly how to heal, how to be our own teacher, our own healer, our own guide. And it's easier said than done. And there is guidance, there are teachers and teachings and a whole tradition and practices and ultimately, we're alone in this journey of self-understanding, self-mastery. So why is it so difficult? Beautiful place, beautiful people, great food, lovely nature. Why is it often so challenging to be here in the silence and the stillness? The Buddha has this lovely uh, phrase, one of many, he said, this mind is naturally pure and radiant, but obscured by visiting tendencies of mind, visiting attachments of mind. And this mind is naturally, in its essence, pure, radiant, peaceful, but is obscured, like the sky is obscured these past few days, by clouds of habits, tendencies. So we're gonna look at those tonight. And sometimes we come to retreat and we see very clearly 
a lot of those, those uh, tendencies and it's quite painful. And we think sometimes that when we're on retreat, we're actually going backwards in our life or our development because we see so much of our stuff. Right? And it's not pretty. It's humbling. Anybody feel humbled here? <laughs> Good, it's working. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's humbling to see even just how hard it is to pay attention, let alone maintain an open, loving heart. You know, here we are sending loving kindness to all beings, but we can't stand the person who's eating too loudly in the dining room. You know, humbling <laughs> and amusing. You know, we have to laugh at ourselves, as Wavy Gravy says. If you don't have a sense of humor, it isn't funny. Right? It's good to find the the humor, the play, the lightness. So this is a reading from uh, Francois Fenelon, who's a Christian writer from the. 16th century, talking about this, this metaphor of as, as we become more aware, we see more stuff and it can be uh, challenging. He says, as light increases, light of awareness, we see ourselves to be worse than we thought. We are amazed at our former blindness as we see issuing forth from the depths of our heart a whole swarm of shameful feelings like filthy reptiles crawling from a hidden cave. I don't know if it's that bad, but anyhow, you know, you get the point. <laughs> We, <laughs> we never could have believed that we had harbored such things as we stand aghast as we watch them gradually or rather suddenly uh, appear. But we must neither be amazed nor disheartened. We are not worse than we were. On the contrary, we are better. But while our faults diminish, the light by which we see them waxes brighter and we are filled with horror. But bear in mind for your comfort that we only perceive the malady when the cure begins." We only perceive the malady when the cure begins. So that seeing that's so essential to any path of waking up, right? Until something comes from the unconscious into the conscious, if out of the dark into the light, no hope. But as soon as we see it, however difficult, painful, embarrassing, humbling it is, uh, then we have the chance to understand it, to work with it, to heal it, to transform it, to disidentify from it. Another way of putting this is from the poet Rumi. He says, if God said, Rumi, pay attention to everything that's helped you enter into my arms, there would not be one experience of my life, not one thought, not one feeling, not one act I would not bow down to. So we may uh, run from these things, we may reject these things, but often these things are the, the, the torments, the challenges are also what uh, can be the fuel for waking up. Some teacher once said, the bigger the delusion, the bigger the, these tendencies, the bigger the awakening. And they become manure for Bodhi, they become the, the ground from which we can transform. So this is the good news that when we start seeing these things, it's like, oh, good. This is no longer being acted out and, and uh, consuming me unconsciously. <clears throat> and sometimes people, as it came up in the question today, said, say, um, but why, you know, why not just look at the roses? You know, why do we have to look at this stuff? Right? Why don't we just focus on you know, affirmations and, you know, spring flowers and 
which we could, you know, there's lots of things we could turn our attention to that are beautiful, and, and we can, and we do, and it's a good thing. But we don't necessarily learn how to transform what's really binding us, you know, what's keeping us in bondage. So, um, one of my favorite phrases from uh, Thich Nhat Hanh, when asked about what Buddhism is, he said, Buddhism is simply a way to live well. Just a way to live well. Happiness is available, please help yourself. And so we cultivate awareness, we cultivate understanding, we cultivate knowing of our experience. We see habits and tendencies and that reveals that we have a certain choice, a certain volition, a certain uh, capacity to not necessarily go down the same tunnels and habits that cause ourselves and others pain. It may not feel like a choice at times because we feel so habituated and compulsed, but actually we do have a lot of choice. When we slow things down, when we see through the light of awareness, we see often we have Uh, uh, we do have a choice whether to follow a particular train of thought, whether we want to go down a stream of emotional reactivity, for example. So mindfulness provides that space and that clarity in which we can make wiser, healthier decisions, which speaks to the question about wise action today. That we're not just observing for the sake of observing, we're observing to live and act and speak more wisely, kindly, effectively in our lives. So the poet, uh, Sufi poet Hafez talked about in this way, he said, we, we have all the ingredients in our lives to turn our life into a nightmare. Do not mix them. Do not mix them. Right? But we do, quite merrily. We wake up feeling tired and uh, we look at our watch and we've slept in, so we start judging ourselves. And then we go to the dining room, we start comparing ourselves because we know everybody's been meditating in, in, in Nirvana for at least the last two hours while we've been slobbing in bed. And on it goes, and we mix all these things of fear and comparing and judging. And, and then what we feel like crap. We feel heavy, we feel depressed. Right? So he says, we also have the ingredients to turn our lives into joy, our existence into joy. Mix them, mix them. So what we're doing here is we're cultivate, we're mixing ingredients. Awareness, clarity, kindness, patience, presence, community, etc. Mixing those ingredients for the purpose of well-being, for the purpose of clarity, for the purpose of waking up. So, um, some of you are quite familiar with this list, with these teachings on the hindrances. Some of you, this will be new, um, regardless of whether you've heard this talk never or 50 times. Um, I imagine that there will be some relevance for you somewhere in it because. Is anybody free of the five hindrances? Just I want to see if. Uh, one, good for you. Two, okay. Three, all right. <laughs> Do you want to come give the talk? Because <laughs> you're doing better than me. <laughs> So, um, the five hindrances, the tendency of uh, the mind to lean towards sense desire, aversion, the energetic imbalances of restlessness and worry and sloth and torpor, where many of you have been hanging out today, sloth and torpor, and doubt or as Snow White embodies the 
light of awareness and her five dwarfs, greedy, grumpy, fidgety, sleepy, and confused. So the Buddha had some interesting metaphor as he did with many of his teachings and he um, made the analogy of um, the mind in the hindrances being like a pool and when our mind is still calm, clear, free of hindrances, we can see with depth, with clarity to the bottom of the pool. When our mind is gripped in the frenzy of desire and wanting and longing, it's as if the, the pool is colored with dyes. So we, it's called brightly colored, but we can't see clearly. It, it filters, it colors our perception. And then when we're gripped in aversion, anger, hostility, it's as if the, the, the pool is, is turbulent, it's whipped up, it's frenzied, heated up. When, it's sl- when we're feeling sloth and dull, it's as if the pool is filled with bindweeds and algae and slime and it's heavy and thick and soupy. And when it's restless, it's like there's a lot of wind, there's white caps on the waves, it's agitated. We, again, we can't see clearly in that disturbance. And then with doubt, the pool is muddy. It's again also thick, can't see clearly. So what we're learning with mindfulness is to see, as someone very beautifully said today or yesterday, I can't remember when it was, um, he was reporting on uh, not feeling well in his body, but reported there was a period of a few hours where he had a lot of clarity to see. There was just these mind states coming and going, coming and going, and he was able to rest in that laser-like quality of awareness, of mindfulness, and not be so caught, so gripped in them. So mindfulness gives us this capacity to see, to know, and also to be present to these waves, these relentless waves of our experience. And so with, the, with all these states of mind, there's, these are five, but there you could come up with your own list of hindrances, right? We could all come up with probably, there's a hundred people in the room, so we can come up with a hundred hindrances of our fet, of pet places that we like to hang out in that cause us suffering. And mindfulness gives us capacity to, to work with these in very uh, skillful ways. And primarily what we're doing with any of these states of mind is recognizing them when they're present. Just like that uh, article, that reading from Francois Fenelon, to shine the light of awareness on them. As soon as we see what it is that we're gripped in, we're no longer, we, we no longer feel so caught. That light of awareness allows us to disengage, to feel more spacious, to feel um, less caught in. So we're also wanting to know when these states are present, we're also wanting to know when they're absent. And I've always found this teaching really interesting. So in the third foundation of mindfulness, which is really where this um, uh, teaching, we could say, mm, mm, fits within the four foundations of mindfulness. So we've been cultivating mindfulness of body, mindfulness of feeling tone, this pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, quality to each experience when without mindfulness we become reactive to those things we with reactivity like hindrances um, and in the third foundation of mindfulness in the teaching the Buddha says to be cognizant of when uh, states of mind are present but also when they're absent so not just to fixate on when 
We're not sitting like a cat over the mouse hole counting the hindrances. We also want to be mindful of the space between hindrances, the space between thoughts, the space between moments of reactivity. To see what that quality of mind is like, with the quality of heart, when we're not afflicted by wanting or resistance or contention with the moment. It's a very, it's a very freeing uh, quality or state. And lastly, we want to know the causes. We want to understand why these things arise and what allows them to pass away. Because often you may experience yourself sitting in meditation, you sit down, you're very happy to be here, you're following your breath, everything seems hunky-dory. And at some point you're just in this cloud and mire of reactivity and negativity and you wake up in the middle of that and like, what happened? How come I went from sitting here serenely minding my own business to suddenly hating everything and everyone and wanting to leave? And that happens. Anybody wanted to leave? Anybody had got their keys in their hand and, you know, <coughs> got close? <laughs> it happens. People often sit in their cars for a while and go, oh, should I? <laughs> it's another form of hindrance. <laughs> and then sometimes they leave. <laughs> mm. So I was in the groups today uh, listening to various hindrances that were people were reporting on. And one of them was the hindrance that arises from the desire to sit on the floor, right? to sit on cushions, right? Because there's a sort of spiritual delusion that somehow sitting on the floor is more holy, as if enlightenment sort of way down there somewhere. <laughs> and the lower, you know, eventually, you know, I go to some retreats and people are sitting on one of these and I think, well, they must be really spiritual, they're sitting on one of those. <laughs> and the amount of suffering we can cause ourselves you know, to our knees and our ankles. And, you know, it's amazing what pain we'll put up with for some idea of something being spiritual or holy or looking cool or something. And these chairs are really comfortable. (laughs) Please avail of yourself. I'm glad you are at the back row there. It's good to see. Someone talked about the radio station in their head today. Anybody got some music playing? Anybody that's... Right? We can sitting there quietly, peaceful, and then suddenly that song that we, pl- that the last song that we heard coming into Spirit Rock, we wish we'd never ever heard of a thing called a radio before, because it plays and it plays and it plays, and we can get into torment around it. We can feel plagued by it. <clears throat> so I'm just going to go, let's see what the time is. No, this is a little whistle stop tour through some of these hindrances, just to both normalize them. And and in the same way that we have these group meetings, so many people said, I'm so happy we met in a group because I realized I wasn't the only crazy person here. I wasn't the only person giving myself a hard time or spacing out or finding it impossible to feel my breath or whatever. So these things are aspects of and reflections of the human condition. So to not personalize them, to not think you're the only one, to see that they're conditioned forces of the human heart and mind. So the first hindrance that often people encounter on retreat is the hindrance of doubt, uh, um, expressed in the, in the thought of, what am I doing here? Why the hell did I sign up for this? Who are these people? And what are those people up there talking about? And what is all this nonsense about? And why does everyone look so miserable? And this is the mind of doubt. Or it expresses itself in an in a internalized form of 
God, this is so hard. I can't do this. I can't meditate. The people in the office were taking bets on how long I would last in silence. <laughs> you know, I've never been able to focus in my life. So why do I think I could do this? You know, so we start undermining our own capacity, our own potential. Very common. I often enjoy hearing what, how the doubting mind manifest for people. So one woman said, I'd rather be at work. (laughs) Or another person said, you know, I could be, you know, I flew all the way to California from the East Coast. It's cold, it's winter there. And um, I could be sipping Chardonnay in a nice spa in Napa Valley. And I'm here with painful knees. Like, what am I doing here? So it's good to know that we're in good company. The Buddha, on the night of his enlightenment, also faced this hindrance. This is again, it's a, it's a, it's a part of the human condition, to, to for that that part of the mind that doubts, that questions uh, unhealthily. There is healthy doubt, where we bring a questioning curiosity, and in Zen they call it the great doubt, the don't know mind. But this hindrance of doubt is really a niggling, self-deprecating. Um, a tendency, habit in the mind that, that pulls us away from experience. It makes us withdraw from engaging. So the Buddha on the night of his enlightenment, did you tell the story? No. Um, was uh, uh, assailed by these voices. And the vo- you know, he'd made this vow to s- take his seat on, on the throne and not uh, on the throne of awakening to not get up until he attained full enlightenment, which is a very bold and courageous um, vow. And at some point in, the, in, the, in that journey in the night, uh, the voice of Mara, it's called, the voice of unconsciousness, of ignorance, came to him and said, who do you think you are to sit on this throne of enlightenment? Who do you think you are? By what right do you uh, claim to be uh, worthy of awakening. Does that sound familiar? Who do you think you are to go to Spirit Rock when there's so much suffering in the world? Who do you think you are to meditate? Think you're so special when we know what you're really like underneath, you know. And the and the Buddha, in his uh, clarity, as and it came to, and the, this voice of Mara didn't just come to him in his uh, enlightenment, but also throughout his life post awakening. And at some point, he would. That the the light of awareness would clarify, and he would say, oh, "I see you. I see you, Mara. I see this voice of doubt." And as soon as the he would see Mara, Mara would get sort of upset and sort of confused and sort of whimper away, hoping to snare the Buddha in some one of his doubting claims. So and it's the same with us. We we turn our attention to these voices, to this habit, this tendency, and we see, oh, it's just a mind state. It's just a, a collection of thoughts that if we take to be true can be very detrimental. Just in the same way the doubting voice often masquerades as the inner critic. Anybody have a judging mind? Anybody have a little, you know, hard on themselves, right? It's a very common, very insidiously undermining quality. I'm writing a book about it at the moment because it's such a, it's such a powerful force and it impacts so many people. And it's really important to notice and to say, I see you, this is, this is a p- point of view. 
this view about myself or my worth or my value or my capacity is just a bunch of words. That's all it is. And if we give those words power and authority, then we're in trouble. If we instead see them just through the light of awareness as words, as just a point of view, just like the many, many points of view in the world, then we can hold them with a little more lightness. There's a a cartoon I like to read that uh, speaks to this quality of um, doubt and judgment. And it's, it's called a checklist of feeling pathetic. And it's really um, the ways that we torment ourselves, and whether it's doubt or whether it's some flavor of the critic, um, you could say the main hindrance of all the hindrances out of in, in these five or beyond these five is the torment of our mind and all the ways our mind creates pain for us in the stories and fantasies and delusions. So um, the, the checklist of feeling pathetic. Examine your face closely in the mirror and notice all the flaws. Especially when you get one of those 10 times magnification. <laughs> they should be called Duca mirrors. Because <laughs> what else are you going to see? You know, like just, <laughs> you know, what's the point? Uh, they should have like minus 10 magnifications. <laughs> oh, look good today. In fact, I think that's why uh, we get bad eyesight as we get older, because you look in them and say, oh, it looks pretty good. And then you look and, <laughs> wow, God, I'm looking old. <laughs> Second checklist, relive embarrassing and awful moments that occurred years ago. And this is a very popular meditation pastime. <laughs> choose some, this is also very common on retreats, choose somebody and compare yourself unfavorably to them. Have you not looked around the room? You've seen the perfect meditator. They look so enlightened, right? And every time you see me, you go, oh, God, I wish they would get itchy or something, you know. <laughs> Think about the people you regularly disappoint. So we just come through the holidays, so especially the people who share your last name, you didn't go there, or you weren't there long enough, or you don't go back there enough, or you know how it goes. And disregard compliments from people who supposedly love you. And this w- the picture is a woman getting a compliment. Hey, you look great. And the thoughts, no, don't, com- don't patronize me. <laughs> so anyhow, many ways that we, we cause ourselves a lot of harm, a lot of, a lot of pain, unnecessary. Right? So we want to look at those habits, right? whether it's looking in the mirror or thinking about things that we've you know, done that are painful. And mostly with the hindrance of doubt, it's very simple. We just need to recognize, oh, this is doubt. This is the voice of doubt. This is the voice of Mara. I see you. And then we come back to coming to direct experience of what actually else is happening right here. Let me reconnect with my breath, my practice. And if you're in that mode of evaluating your practice in the retreat, you know, it's day two, I've been here 68 hours and I'm not enlightened yet and I don't know if this is any good, I don't know about these teachers and, you know, just let that evaluation go. Just be here, do your practice, do your work and then see at the end of the retreat, take some time to reflect. How was that? Was it useful? Maybe take some time after a month and look back and say, what was the impact of that? How do, how I, how do I see the ripples of awareness from the retreat growing? So, out of doubt, one of the things that can arise, so we can often have a multiple hindrance attack, as Howie's referred to earlier, where we're feeling not good enough, and then we see it's raining outside, and we start hating the rain, and we know there's no coffee here, we get really grumpy about that, and suddenly we're just plagued by all these you know, different hindrances. 
But sometimes what can arise out of doubt is, uh, this is what I think is probably perhaps the most common hindrance on retreat, which is aversion. Right? Where we have an unpleasant experience, an unpleasant sensation, body, speech, or mind, uh, or in the environment, and we don't like it, we don't want it, and we have a reaction. And there's plenty here that's beautiful, and there's plenty here to fixate on of stuff you don't want or don't like, right? Like your roommate, or the food, or whatever it is that the mind decides to pick on and decide is not quite as you would like it, right? So, anybody had a little aversion this today? A little resistance, a little reactivity, a little uh, rejecting, avoidance, fear, anger, hatred, violent, homicidal tendencies. <laughs> if that person doesn't stop breathing, just, just stop making that noise, I'm going to kill him. Right? May you be happy. <laughs> and stop breathing. <laughs> I remember doing a three-month retreat on the East Coast, and it was my first long retreat, and this guy, I don't know, I thought he was a walrus or something. Oh, I don't know how walruses <laughs> breathe, but it was loud. And, um, you know, and you're not supposed to write notes to each other because it's very disturbing and you, people get very sensitive and so we don't recommend that. But it's every part of me wanted to like, shut up. <laughs> <laughs> and then I talked to him after the retreat and he's got some really painful nasal sinus thing. And I'm like, oh God, I'm so m- a terrible person. <laughs> Here I am, like, you know, really getting on this person's case, and the poor guy's just got sinus issues, you know. So aversion is, you know, the, we see so much aversion in the world, the, 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 the force of violence, of hatred, of warfare, of exploitation, of oppression, of racism. Right? It's, it, the, the world is rife with it. It fuels the conflict in the world, whether it's in the Middle East or anywhere. It's the macro level of version, but in the, in the re, there's also the micro level, which we're seeing moment to moment in our experience. We see, we have the seeds of that same thrust of violence or hatred or aggression or fear or anger that we see externalized in the world. We can look at it and see it in our own mind. Yeah. When someone doesn't hold the door for us and it comes in our face and we feel a sudden rush of indignancy, right? Or, 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 um, aggression or um, you know, we're walking alone at night down to our room and we realize we're the only person there. We've, we've got waves of fear. Right? This is also an aspect of aversion. Or you go to your favorite walking spot that's become your walking spot and someone is in, how dare they be in your walking spot and you're like, <laughs> in England, they have these trees, the Lelandi trees, is that what they're called? Where's anybody from England here? There's, there's t- like tall fern trees that people plant in their gardens. They grow very quickly. They create great, they make great hedgerows. And, but of course, if, you, if they're blocking your view or your window or your light, you know, people get very upset. And actually people have killed each other over the trees in the garden. Just that, 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 that force of aversion, uncontrolled, unchecked, leads to really uh, rampant and painful things. I had this story once of a, it was on NPR, of a, a lawyer in an office in Texas got so frustrated at work with his computer, he got out his six-shooter and shot his computer. <laughs> Not recommended. 
So sometimes on the retreat, we refer to this as the Vipassana vendetta, when somebody, for whatever reason, just bugs us, right? They're wearing the wrong color socks, they're in our walking place, they're in our favorite dining room chair, and we just have it in for them, you know? And our mind fixates and can't help but see everything through that lens of aversion. And we can laugh and it's funny, and in that moment, it's also very painful. To be gripped in any of these hindrances, but particularly aversion, can feel very toxic. Our, our whole body mind is contracted and constricted. And even though the object, we're very happy to find and pick on an object, that object person is actually just happily going about their day. We're the one who is suffering with our judging and our hating and our resistance and our aversion. So it's really useful to look at the causes of this because it causes so much pain in our lives. Why do we go from just sitting happily minding our own business in meditation to suddenly feeling a wave of reactivity and, and anger? Or fear. So to understand how these things arise. What causes you to feel feel reactivity or rejection. Or maybe it's just something internal, some emotion that you feel uncomfortable with. Maybe it's helplessness or hopelessness or deficiency or emptiness. Right? Lots of things in our experience we don't want to feel, so we, we, we have a lot of reactivity, aversion, we reject, we avoid, we suppress. So often fueled by the thought if this would go away, if this person would go away, if this feeling would go away, if the rain would go away, if my knee pain would go away, I would be happy. It would all be, it would, I'd be that close to nirvana if this person wouldn't be so annoying in the meditation. If my neighbor's dog would shut up, if, you know, whatever it is, whatever conflict we're facing in our lives, where there's a view, if, I, if this person, if this traffic, if this conflict was not here, I'd be happy. Well, maybe, but maybe just the mind would just fix it on the next thing. Right? That's wrong or problematic. So what is your particular vendetta? What is your particular way that you fixate? And then of course in Buddhism there's this thing called the three personality types. We, we, tend to, we either tend towards aversion, towards desire or towards delusion. If, if our inclination is towards aversion, then we start, we see, we're more attuned to seeing what's wrong, what's imperfect, what's problematic. Yeah. So Howie uh, was asking if I was going to tell his story, so I will. Um, so I started uh, my Vipassana practice in India, and uh, it was in the Thai forest temple in Bodh Gaya. It was a beautiful place to practice, big, lovely grounds outside the village of Bodh Gaya, which is the place that the Buddha attained awakening, very sacred place to Buddhists, lovely temples everywhere, and the village growing up around the temples. And as Buddhism has become more popular, so the village and has become into town, and then the town, the once reclusive village monasteries are now surrounded by quite a lot of busyness and hustle and bustle. And in January, it's the time that the Tibetan pilgrims come. So there's thousands and thousands of pilgrims come. And then also people come to sell things to the pilgrims, like bus tickets and clothing and food. And one particular year, uh, I don't know if it was my first or second year there, I was on this 20-day retreat. And this travel agency set up shop outside the 
temple and they put a loudspeaker on top of the uh, shop and uh, they were announcing bus tickets to the, these pilgrims who would file by in their thousands and they had a particularly alluring uh, tape cassette message that would play and rewind and the message was hello 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 and then some words in hindi i didn't understand da, 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 da. and then bombay calcutta darjeeling delhi madras da, da, a few words in hindi and then it would rewind hello 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 <laughs> and you can't help but responding like oh me <laughs> you want something <laughs> do you know me <laughs> And in the beginning, it was sort of, oh, it was kind of amusing. You know, it's India. It's, you know, it's sort of, has its own sort of adoring quality. And, but we're on this 20-day silent retreat, and we're not allowed to leave the grounds. We can't do any nonviolent direct action. We can't unplug the, <laughs> you know, we've got to pray to, you know, the gods that they, the power goes out, which it does a lot in Bihar. And, um, and, and, and a little aversion would arise. <laughs> little hatred, a little <laughs> aggression, a little anger, a little indignance. How, this is a spiritual place. How dare they bring, bring commerce to the holy land and all that, you know, just the self doing its thing and causing a lot of suffering for itself. And, of course, it wouldn't, it didn't, you know, it would come on morning and night, you know, hello, 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 hello. And it would just drive us all nuts and a lot of aversion and... and, and um, and it went on for days. And um, so there was a wave of reaction, aggression, aversion, hatred, homicide feelings. <laughs> and then at some point, you know, when anything's that incessant, it, at some point we learn that the, the key, the way through is to surrender. Right? There's, we can't fight it. We can't stop it. So we have to find some internal peace with it, which, ha- which, which can happen through mindfulness, through equanimity, through surrender. And over time, it just became sound, as 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 we can shift our, our orientation from something that's, that we regard as a problematic to it's just sound. Right? As Chan said, it's we that disturbs the noise, not the noise that disturbs us. And so, um, over time, it just became sound and became neutral, and it became amusing, and it was, and then it became sort of like, oh, there's a sound again. It was kind of fun, and it just became like wind through the trees. It wasn't a problem. So the teaching in that is the happiness that I thought I would have to be, the only way I could be peaceful is for that noise to shut up. But actually peace is available amidst whatever experience we're in depending on our relationship to it. So that's why we talk a lot about our attitude and our relationship. It's not the thing that's the problem. It's not the person or the breathing or the conflict or the noise or the pain or whatever it is. It's our relationship or attitude that really causes the psychological and emotional torment uh, that plagues us. So whatever your version of that is, to see if you can bring some quality of allowing, accepting, equanimity. This is from Rilke. He says, how dear, talking about his uh, pain, he says, how dear will you be to me then, you nights of anguish? Why didn't I kneel more deeply to accept you, inconsolable sisters, and surrendering lose myself in your loosened hair? How we squander our hours of pain, how we gaze beyond them into a bitter endurance to see if they had an end, 
though they are really seasons of us, our winter enduring foliage. So how often you've been sitting in the midst of pain and just thinking, when are they gonna ring the bell? When are they gonna ring the bell? When is this gonna be over? Right? Rather than actually being with what's here. Right? So an important part of our practice is we turn towards, we lean into, we become curious, we allow, we soften right, with whatever it is. And sometimes the phrase, Pain is like this, aversion is like this, difficulty is like this. Brings a sense of allowing to it, whatever it is. Sometimes kindness, metta, infusing our our awareness with kindness also helps soften the the brittleness of aversion. And then of course its sister is, um, is, is sense desire. And how he spoke to this some yesterday, this movement, this, this seeming inherent movement in the ego structure to look outside of itself for satisfaction, to move towards any kind of sensory pleasure, particularly when we're bored, when it's difficult, when we want some stimulation, and we live in a very stimulated, sensually gratified culture, that it's hard to be uh, uh, without that, without our little whatever it is, our cookies, our ice cream, our TV, our booze, our sports, our, you know, whatever our comforts are. Right? So, it's, so it's natural that you may experience that leaning, that wanting, that maybe there's not even an object, you just feel that insatiable longing for something. You know, I remember being in Nepal, I was trekking in Nepal and I walked to the market and one day this guy came out of a store and he said, um, something? <laughs> like he didn't quite know what he was going to sell me, but something. I was like, oh yes, that sounds good. <laughs> I'll take that. <laughs> I'll take two of those. <laughs> so think about what you've, what you've been desiring in these last two days. What have you been wanting? What's the, what's the leaning of the mind and the heart? Right? Maybe it's connection. Maybe it's sexual fantasy. Maybe it's food or coffee or, you know, just feeling into that longing, that wanting that, insatiable, unquenchable thirst. Right? And maybe you get, maybe you go down, it's like, oh, there is this free coffee, fantastic, and you get your coffee. Ah, where's the cookies? I haven't seen any cookies. I don't know. <laughs> and it, on it goes, right? It's the, the endless wheel of samsara. You know, my favorite story is one of my colleagues was working at, on staff at the sister center on the East Coast IMS, and he was, heard this ruckus in the kitchen at two or three in the morning, and he went down, and there's all these people making food. They just decided they'd like to hell with waiting for breakfast. We're just going to make our own food. <laughs> and he walks into the walk-in fridge and there's this guy and with his hand in a big box of dates. And he says, and then my friend says, um, can I help you? And he says, oh, I'm looking for the maintenance department. <laughs> <laughs> Desire and delusion run deep. <laughs> so so the qu- one of the questions is, do all of those sensory uh, experiences that you've had, right? Where are they now? And did they bring the lasting satisfaction that you were perhaps hoping for? Right? Because what we, we, we're wanting uh, ultimately to find that sense of ease and well-being, some sense of lasting satisfaction. Right? And there's plenty of beautiful, delicious sensory experiences in this life. We have a body that's very sensory and impressionable and to be enjoyed and delighted, right? And 
that they're all temporary. They don't last. How would would the most amazing thing you've ever had, boom, it's gone in seconds or minutes or moments. So again, to notice notice the force, to feel, to embody that force of wanting, of longing, of grasping. Rumi talks a lot about the, to embody the longing. He's mostly longing for God, but it's the same longing in a way. We're off, our, I, he will say our, our, our longing is, is misplaced. You know, we look for things in stuff, in experiences, in people, um, that are looking for something that's unquenchable in a certain way. And to see what that's fueled by, it's often fueled again by a view. Our views are very powerful, our beliefs. So, th- so when, you, when you're thinking, when you're longing for something, look at what's fueling that. The, the, usually the view of, if I have this, if I get this, if I acquire this, if I own this, then what? Then I'll be happy, then I'll relax, then I'll settle, then I'll be at peace, then I'll feel satisfied. Which of course we might do for, you know, again, some moments. And then that habit, because we've been cultivating very carefully for, you know, many decades, it keeps going. Yeah. It's one of the the deepest source of dissatisfaction. Until we can land in the midst of it and just be with that longing itself, that wanting itself. Oh, desire is like this. Wanting is like this. Hunger is like this. Oh, it's just another impersonal force, tendency in the mind. And we can see it's actually, what's so powerful about meditation practice, the stillness of the practice, is we see all these things come and go. We see the deepest, hungriest longing come, lasts a while, it's a 45 minute sit, rarely lasts that long, and it passes away. And if we don't fuel it, it passes away, and there's a moment of peace. Same with any with the intense emotional reactivity. It comes, it's like a volcano explodes, and at some point it settles, and we come back to a sense of peace well-being. So our desires are endless, and the desires aren't a problem just as thoughts aren't a problem. We will always have them right, for different things. What's the, the key issue here is not the desire, but our relationship to it. Do we, do we bind to it a demand, an attachment, a fixation, a grasping? This has to happen. I have to have coffee in the morning, otherwise I quit. Or whatever your compulsion is. And the desires are very instructive. Again, anything that arises, hindrances are are powerful places for insight. To see when we're in the grip of a desire, how it creates, it's like having blinkers on. We have tunnel vision, we get fixated, everything else disappears in importance, and we become very self-focused to the detriment and harm at times of other people. Right, because we get fixated on what we want and we have to have it and we're believing in that, that ideology, right? the consumer ideology. And to feel into all of these hindrances the suffering nature of them. Right? To feel gripped in grasping, to go from just sitting peacefully, happily following your breath to suddenly, I've got to have this. Right? That is painful because we feel separate we feel deficient, we feel incomplete till we, till we have the object of, uh, of desire. Right? So it keeps us bound to this sense of 
insufficiency. So the mindfulness is so liberating because we can see those thoughts, we can see, we can feel those impulses, those longings, and we can also step outside of them, we can disidentify, have space enough around them to see that it's not who we are and we don't have to actually uh, act it out to be at peace. We can have freedom in relationship to whatever it is. And people say, well, what about my desire for liberation? What about my desire for, for human connection? What about my desire to save the planet? What about, and these are very healthy desires. So the Buddha distinguished between wholesome desire and unwholesome desire. There are desires that lead to more desire and more, more you know, being more um, bound in a certain way. And there are desires that lead to happiness, to well-being, to peace, to freedom, to the relief of suffering. Right? So we want to support and cultivate those, those uh, intentions, those wholesome desires. And then to see when are the desires that are causing us constriction, tunnel vision, self-centeredness, etc. We want to see those. We want to feel them. We want to feel the impersonal nature of them and allow them to release. The Buddha said, whoever in this world overcomes desire so hard to transcend will find that suffering falls away like drops of water falling from a flower. And we can taste that in our own experience moment by moment. Where we can taste moments of Nibbana where we feel the freedom from the grip of longing, of aversion, of contention with the moment and be at ease in the stillness in the center of our experience and not longing for anything. We can taste those moments of peace. That's why he spoke to noticing the presence and the absence of, because the absence of these forces are very informative. So I'm just going to touch, just really point to the other two hindrances which you've been probably experiencing at times, some of you a lot. The hindrance of restlessness, the agitation, the worry, the, the mental spinning, the physical agitation, the, some people feel it as itchiness of wanting to jump out of your skin, run out the room. Anybody want to run out the room at times? Just get the hell out of here and run up the hill or shout or put music on or do something. Just, you know, can feel very oppressive sometimes, the silence and the stillness, the slow. You know, you want to, you're stuck behind the line. It's going really slowly and you want to just, you know, get the bell and whack the... <laughs> This is restlessness, this, this excess of energy, physical, mental, triggered by thoughts, triggered by future, triggered by worry, triggered by regrets, triggered by um, putting a certain pressure on your practice, expectations, over-achieving, over over-striving, many different ways that restlessness can arise. And again, we bring awareness to it. It's just another movement of experience. It's just an imbalance of energy, mental and physical, that we need to allow to come to some harmony, which means we now need a little more space or a little more relaxation or a little more stillness or a little more movement. Sometimes the restlessness is so intense it's actually much better to move, to walk, to to walk fast, take a long walk, to allow some of that energy to uh, unfold. Sometimes we need to sit and we sit with the eyes open so there's more space rather than try to confine our attention to a narrow point, but to sit and, and, and feel the space in the room, the stillness. Sometimes that allows the heart and mind to, to settle. 
So and just to, and to and to see how these things come and arise, how, what triggers you from feeling calm? Maybe it's too much caffeine. Very simple. Maybe it's too much worrying about the future that never happens. In the Mark Twain line, "I'm an old man and have known great many troubles, but most of them never actually happened." Right? Just to see how we spin ourselves into a tizzy. Or we, we write out our to-do list and we feel suddenly overwhelmed and lack of time and scarcity and fear. And, right? and so we, let, we see the thinking mind, we come back into the body, into the breath, feel the slow exhale of the out-breath, feel the ground. Wonderful resource for restlessness is being outside. Nature is generally inherently calming for most people. The stillness of nature, the trees, the light. As Wendell Berry, the poet, writes when he's, when he's restless and he wakes up in the night in fear of what his life and his children's lives may become, he goes and lies down where the wood drake rests its quiet beauty on the water and where the great heron feeds. He come into the, comes into the presence of day-blind stars waiting with their light. He comes into the presence of wild things who do not tax their lives with forethought of grief. He rests in the grace of the world, the natural world, and is free. So use the nature as a support for stillness, presence, calming. And lastly, the hindrance of um, sleepiness, sloth, which I imagine, you know, usually day one or day two is often quite heavy, sleepy. We're catching up, we're adjusting to the stillness, getting more subtle with our attention. And and, uh, as we enter tomorrow, more in the middle of the retreat, you may find the energy picking up. I was teaching, probably in almost in every group, I was teaching standing meditation. If you're sleepy, the easiest thing to do is to stand, keep the eyes open, brighten the mind, go outside, walk. Um, but again, whether it's the hindrance of restlessness or sleepiness, when we bring awareness to them, they're no longer hindrances. They're just the, the, the current state of mind, the current state of the body. Right? Whether it's like, uh, too much energy, too little energy, you want to cultivate that balance of relaxed, but not sleepy, alert, but not over-revved. So, enough words for now, but just to recap, to know that whatever's arising in your experience can be held, can be known in awareness. So the hindrances no longer become a hindering when we can uh, reside in mindfulness and see and feel and be present to the, the, the experience of them, seeing how they rise, how they pass away. And this is possible. We can free ourselves in any moment from the grip of these forces. And, and, and through practice, we actually begin to weaken their grip. We begin to uh, lose so much fascination in all of the fantasy thoughts or the longings, or we see the painfulness of of our own contraction in aversion and resistance, and so we start to unfree ourselves from some of their their lure or their bind. You know? So I'll close with a, with one last poem from a local teacher. Jennifer Wellwood, who talks again about this turning towards uh, experience, particularly difficult experience. She says, it's called unconditional. Opening to my loss. Oops. Mm. This is a misprint of this poem, but anyhow, I'll do my best. Willing to experience aloneness, I discover connection everywhere. 
Turning to face my fear, I meet the warrior who lives within. Opening to my loss, I gain the embrace of the universe. Surrendering into emptiness, I find fullness without end. This is, this is the two lines that really speak to this, uh, the hindrances. Each condition I flee from pursues me. Each condition I welcome transforms me. Each condition I flee from pursues me. Each condition I welcome transforms me and becomes itself transformed into its radiant jewel-like essence. I bow to the one who has made it so, who has crafted, crafted this master game. To play it is purest delight, to honor its form, true devotion. So may we be, may we be devoted in our practice. So let's just sit for a moment. Noticing the presence or absence of doubt, of sense desire, of aversion, resistance, boredom, restlessness, sleepiness, resting in awareness, Resting in the knowing, not the conditions that are known. So thank you for your attention. We'll have some walking now. We'll come back at nine o'clock for some sitting and chanting. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.